Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Welcome to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath podcast on YouTube. Funny sort of mixing of media, don't you think? So this is for those who are just listening. There's no charts or anything else. So I'd like to pick up with a topic that I've been, for the most part, you probably think I'm obsessed about, choline. No, I'm not obsessed about choline. Um, you know, sometimes I get really granular into the details, and that's where I really have to present some of that on a video so you can see what I'm talking about. And others, I can be big picture and just sort of describe how era, the times have changed, and how we know what we know, and what is it we don't know? Okay, so this just officially just became a nutrient in 1998. That was the year I graduated from med school, naturopathic medical school at Bastyr in Seattle, speaker of the class. Um, and so that was a bit of a controversy. You know, where'd this come from? It was always, we already knew it was required. It was part of our whole foods oriented approach. So that part wasn't new, but that a elevated it. You know, choline wasn't something that was unknown. I've given the history of how we understand choline that goes way back to the early 1800s and certainly you can go back to the Greeks before that. Uh, the idea of bile, which is, anyway, a whole other story. But the, the idea that we were sort of fighting with at that time in 1998 was they just started to fortify our foods with folic acid. Not folate, but folic acid. And they did that primarily because that there had been a long and sustaining incidence of neural tube defect in children. Primarily, it was a deficiency in the mothers and in their pregnancy, the subsequent fetuses and children were deficient in folate. So that was the first one that sort of it was defined by the deficiency. And, and that's the concept that you get with every nutrient. There's this deficiency going on. So whether it was B12 or whether it was vitamin A or vitamin E, they were all defined by a problem and found that it came from a deficiency in the diet. And so, and, and really the 1900s, the 1900s, not the 1800s and not 2000, was the era of identifying nutrients. They call them vitamins, which are vital amines, which is a, in essence, a protein. But that's, that's another thing. But the point I wanted to get across, they are defined by a deficiency first. They track it back to what is this deficiency about. So choline was the same thing. But we have kind of an overlapping function here because with choline, 
how we noticed the deficiency was actually in young men. As much as I've talked a lot about women, and I'll get back to that, that um, it was really in young men who were not getting enough choline that they were developing fatty liver. So fatty liver can certainly be identified by CAT scan and MRI. It's basically the size of the liver. Um, pretty straightforward. And then they, but even before that, you can do liver function tests, which are pretty standard with family practice. And you, when you see your doctor annually, you will have LFTs, we call them. Um, and so they can tell that something's going on. So it was identified in young men initially. And so then it goes, well, how much do we give them? What is required? And by the way, that question hasn't been answered. There's different levels of understanding what a nutrient is. And the first level is this level called adequate intake. So adequate intake means if you take this amount, and now we're, it's a population-wide level. So if you take this amount, X amount, you at least will be guaranteed that you won't be deficient. So that's what adequate intake is. And so then they go on and the, the second level is what they call estimated average requirement. And that hasn't been determined. So the estimated average requirement is something that for 50% of the population won't be deficient. So for 50% of the population won't be deficient. So that's estimated average intake. And then it goes on, that's the basis for a more specific you know, requirement. So it's not even up to the RDA level. So the problem with understanding about choline is that we don't have, as a doctor, that I can give you right now, or any doctor that you go to, family practice primarily, or whoever you see, there is no choline test. There are choline tests for serum that for, for very expensive research, just like some of the studies I've cited. So at the University of North Carolina, where a lot of this has gone on, and other places now, of course, too, that, um, you know, they're expensive tests and they're usually high-pressured lipochromatography or something, some aspect of that, but it's not a cheap test that one can include like those liver tests. Okay, so why am I saying that? Well, we can't just punch out Everybody in, the, everybody in the United States that sees a doctor and gets the, their basic blood work done annually, we don't know where they are. So what we do is we work backwards from how are their liver enzymes doing? How are their kidney enzymes, meaning creatinine? Phosphokinase, which is another, it's, it's a standard uh, kidney test and blood urea nitrogen. So you look those up and you go, yeah, they're normal. We'll just leave it be. But if they're ele elevated, you know, it's still a wide range of things that you can guess from to say, well, what's up with this being elevated? So it's still a general way of diagnosing choline deficiency. You see, I personally use uh, intracellular testing and that's okay. I mean, it's far better than nothing. And it's been correct for my patient population so far, my client population so far. Um, if they're choline deficient, it means by the time it, it shows up on that test, they've probably been choline deficient for a while, but that's not an official way of looking at it, okay? So choline, it, you know, has three, 
three solid functions. One is, I call it the wrapping of every cell, right? So you have phosphatidylcholine, which is you eat animal products for the most part. Yes, it's in plants, but <laughs> it's far and away much more concentrated in animal products. And so you eat phosphatidylcholine, it comes in and it also makes, it goes through a number of changes. I'm not going to get into that. Did that before in various videos. But it goes into making phosphatidylcholine again, and that's the form it started from, but it also ends up being the beginning of a whole category thing called phospholipids. Just like you have phosphatidylcholine, you also have phosphatidylserine, you also have sphingomyelin. These are all important fats and call them the wrappings of the cell, right? So the wrappings of the cell makes it flexible as opposed to rigid. But what it also does, it is sensitizes the surface of the cells to be able to communicate with each other. And that's really important. So call it the wrapping of the cell. The Another purpose, I don't know which is first, second, or third, they're all co-equal important. The other purpose is about methylation, which I've talked a lot about. The It's a critical link. The big three are B12, folate, and folic acid for some, but basically folate is far better. And choline, these three work together and they can kind of back each other up. I mean, if, if folate is so deficient in a person's diet, but they're getting choline, choline can step in and do some of those roles and vice versa. But it's uh, pretty unusual that somebody would be up on choline and deficient on folate or deficient on folate and uh, deficient on choline and up on folate. So usually they all come together. When you find in real world of whole food sources, the whole food sources of folate, of B12, of choline, are really all the liver products. So whatever your liver thing is that you like, and I hope you like some, whether it's, whether it's poultry liver like chicken liver, uh, there's even turkey liver, and, or if it's um, beef liver or calf's liver, or veal's liver, uh, which are obviously different. Veal is six months or younger. Calves are up to a year and a half. And after that, it's called beef, right? Beef liver. And you have pork liver and you have lamb's liver and you have sheep's liver. All those are highly, uh, I want to say highly concentrated. Those are the best sources for all three of those. Egg yolks are the highest of choline in particular and less so far less so in terms of folate and B12. So those are kind of, when you think about that ancestrally, right? The way I like to look at it is, you know, does something make sense when there's these profound nutrients, like we're finding out about choline, is that you go, well, the foods that have these nutrients in them, how much, how, what the common sense of, do we think this, they had this 50,000 years ago? 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. So did it evolve with us? And one is you can certainly say, yeah, egg yolks evolved with us. Egg yolks evolved with us. That, that's the first food that the evolving humans, Homo sapiens, learned to steal from other species. So they were their first, that was the first klepto high nutrient food. They could reach into a nest, take it and bring it home and share it with everybody, and it had all the nutrients, and it had all the amino acids and the egg whites. You know, you can joke about when the first egg was stolen, you know, they're saying, no, we don't need to 
hunt the mastodon anymore, or we don't need to kill the saber-toothed tiger. Let's just live in peace with these guys. Let's just be stealing eggs because eggs has it all. And certainly the uh, liver of anything they did kill. So between those two things, they were set. The only thing they had to worry about after that was enough water and enough air and calories in general. But that was it. Game over. With those two things, game over. Um, and so I've talked a lot about that. So what I'm saying is ancestrally, it makes sense that these three nutrients, B12, folate, choline, have ancestrally evolved with us. I don't think they evolved much. We evolved and realized how important and they were there every step of the way. So suddenly when we come into the processed food era of the last 70 years, especially starting with the the nutritional guidelines that came about in the 60s and 70s that basically said, you know, you shouldn't have saturated fats, you should have polyunsaturated. And so therefore the soy oils and the corn oil, corn oils were used instead of uh, lard, tallow, and suet. You know, and it's like, that was a big shift away. And of course, eggs were part of that. Well, you're not going to have eggs because they're fairly high in saturated fats. So that was the beginning of what I would call collateral damage. The collateral damage is all these other nutrients are the population that we believed in the government at that point, and these nutritional guidelines that we were now gradually going to be for a number of generations, growing more and more and more deficient. So back to choline. Choline is, you know, these are three hugely important functions. The methylation, helping to turn genes on and off. I mean, it's everything from mental disorders I've talked about before, neurotransmitters, that's the third function, which of course it's the precursor for acetylcholine, which has to do with brain, and it has to do with muscle. And in fact, the, the study, um, the study which is I've talked about before, it's sex and menopausal status influences human dietary requirements for the nutrient choline. Well, you know, the study had um, a third men, a third premenopausal women, and a third postmenopausal women, and it looked at these different categories. Uh, it was pretty profound, and it still is very profound because because they decided to look at various responses. It, it, research hasn't been done that way before. Research was, let's say, pharmaceuticals, which are the ones who basically foot the bill to all sorts of research. Um, any sort of new discovery was because they were looking for something else and discovered something else along the way. But, um, lost my train of thought for a second, but basically this research that was done on any Anything that's being looked into, they have a population, they give you this thing, and they say, okay, for it had positive effects for X amount, and it had very poor effects for X amount, but it was labeled safe, but it didn't say why, didn't identify the group specifically in some sort of attribute, you know, by gender, or by race, or by gene, or by anything else. It was just like, yeah, it benefited more people than it didn't. Check that box, move on. That's all there was. So we don't know, if B12 and folate, name your special vitamin. We don't know um, why, now we're starting to learn why. We don't, didn't know why some people have great benefits for something and other people didn't have. The only, only thing we could think 
that we might fit into that box of one size fits all is that some people were more deficient in this thing we're giving them than others. And of course, they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck. They're going to go, oh my gosh, look, look what has happened. And that's true. There's a truism in that. But that's not the only thing. So, to be, so you have deficiency, check. That's, a, that's a, a precondition to getting a good benefit for the most part, the chances of having a good benefit from whatever nutrient you're taking. The other would be obviously SNPs and knowing your genetic makeup. And so when I've talked about, oh, a genetics, a, uh, epigenetics and the advent of that, which really started in the 40s, as we go forward, we find two things. We find there had to be a deficiency in a certain population for whatever reason, feast or famine, right? Um, or, and so when we talked about the Dutch hunger winter of 1944 to 45, at the end of World War II, there were millions of people that were boxed into starving for roughly about eight months. Many died, but in that, and but since it was a literate, civilized group of people, that all these records were kept, the birth records, the death records, um, and they were tracked. Subsequent, those who were born during that time, those who were born in the beginning of that time, those who were born just at the end of that time. And so it went on. So all these, all this data realized that the deficiency had to be there. Hence, that was because the, there was a big siege. The German um, prevented any sort of trains or anything else going into uh, that area. So there's a lot of starvation, starvation for everybody. So there was the deficiency, but within that, you had a genetic predisposition for some. So some obviously did, it wasn't just about calories, they didn't get enough calories. It was some did terribly, and some did okay. Some, I don't think anybody improved. But, so those are the two things, deficiency with a genetic predisposition, which means that you require more of a particular nutrient. So far, we don't have it all mapped out, but we're having a good idea around B12, folate, folic acid, and choline. And so when this study was breaking down men uh, and women, premenopausal and postmenopausal, and they found in the category of women, this is really mind-blowing. You know, the idea that setting women separately or in addition to as a separate category, that they have separate needs you know, that's a modern idea, modern being really in the last 20 years in terms of medical research. That's what I'm talking about, the medical research, or do women have different needs than men? And the answer is obviously yes, since they are going to be carrying the babies of the future, right? So they're going to have to provide the nutrition for all of this, for all those, all the things the baby needs to be developed, and so, and to keep their own health. So, all right, that's the first sort of obvious thing. But we don't know what those differences were. And then to find it's not just all women, some women do fine and other women don't do fine because of their genetic predisposition. They have estrogen drives, a lot of, of backup power, if you will. It's kind of like a hybrid. Uh, estrogen is meant as it for these 35 years of childbearing years for women that this high level of estrogen will then create other, not high levels, but other higher levels than men would have of choline. We know that, but I'm sure there's going to be other categories as well. Well, if you have genetic SNPs, single nuclear polymorphisms, you have a genetic problem that suddenly they're not going to be sensitive to the estrogen, then they're going to be as if they were not getting, you know, they're going to be as if they were starving 
from choline if they didn't know they should have choline in their diet. So before, these women with elevated estrogen kind of, I won't say lucked out, I'm going to use that word loose, loosely, they had this backup ability to generate choline, so they were never going to be in trouble. You know, the higher the estrogen, the more it's going to be generating more choline because it hits certain enzymes. And so that's great. So they didn't need, they didn't need to know anything about that they needed choline in their diet. Forget about dietary requirements. They got that covered. But the women who don't have that sensitivity, the estrogen is not going to drive an increased amount of choline. They are going to be terrible, especially if they do conceive. So now they have this demand on the system that they can't deliver to. They can't provide the choline. And if they are, like most Americans, uh, 94%, don't know enough to have choline in their diets and what those sources are, they are going to be made even worse. The higher priority is make the baby live. You know, give what the baby needs. So they're going to extract it from the mom. And so there's a lot of conditions and certainly you have postpartum depression because postpartum depression is after the delivery is that, you know, estrogen is down. It's now down to kind of a much lower level. It's very high during pregnancy. So these, these women that, that suddenly can't have the estrogen to help them make choline and for other women that when they finally get to the end where the coal, the estrogen is, so once they disappeared, but is, is very low, suddenly they're going to be depleted of choline. The women who could never make their own choline had to exist through their pregnancy and they were extracted. They were feeling terrible for this whole time. They were losing their choline to fortify the child. Interesting in that regard. So that can be fixed, but it had to do with deficiency in the general population and a particular genetic mutation. So you go, well, why are these these mutations? You know, I mean, I, you, you can say, well, I, I guess they're all errors. Uh, generally, when you go back and you look at, um, for instance, there's other mutations about uh, being able to methylate folate, uh, B12, so they call that MTHFR, you might have heard of that, and then so people go, oh, I have MTHFR, and there's, there's a few different um, mutations, SNPs, by the way, and some are worse than others, so just having it, doesn't matter which one you have matters and are you homozygous and are heterozygous and so all sorts of possibilities. So if you had the worst of the worst, you would have not an inability. If you had an inability, you'd be dead. You'd never make it to birth. But you have your enzyme has been slowed down significantly. And so you are behind on being able to deliver methylated, uh, methylated folate for one and B12 onto the places that it needs to go. So it's, it's, it's an obstacle with a little bit, some can squeak by. So that's a problem. Same with choline. If choline can't be made into a form that's usable or can't be made at all, as I've just talked about, you're then going to suffer the deficiencies thereof. So some have those. So, but I wanted to say is that what we know, when which we, we know a lot more actually about B12, the MTHFR, and a few others on a popula population-wide uh, basis because at, for whatever reason, MTHFR way back in the early 2000s was much more popular. I used to check that off in the lab test for both adults and kids to find out if that was part of their, their issue. But it's usually greater Mediterranean uh, ethnicities, like Italians for, in, in particular, but others 
that supposedly had a diet so high in folate all the time that that need to methylate disappeared because they were getting it through their diets. I can't tell you where you get methylated folate. I've heard things from certain plants like rye and so on and so forth, but I think it's the, I think it's high, the plants that were used there, they had less refined foods and so on and so forth. But I wanted to say as much as when you read about that, you say, oh, these are the area, these are the people that had the greatest predisposition. I never found that to be true in the people that I saw. They weren't, you know, Mediterranean people that had these. But the point I want to make is usually the disappearance of an important enzyme is because in the era in which we didn't move around and we had generation after generation after generation that lived right there in that village or that country and that province, whatever, for times of thousands, many thousands of years, there wasn't going to be a lot of change in the abundance. You know, your genes are by requirement. And so if you don't have a necessity to convert something to a useful form so everything else can survive, like MTHFR, then it sort of disappears. The need disappears. Interesting. Uh, you could also say things like vitamin C to glucose that... Um, humans have lost the ability to convert vitamin C into glucose, and uh, which is interesting, except for the guinea pig and one other mammal. I don't know, it's a duck-billed platypus or something. But for the most part, mammals can't produce their own vitamin C from glucose. It's actually from vitamin C from glucose. It was kind of like, oh, there you go, here's your vitamin C. So and why was that? It's, it's not so much we have to have our vitamin C, is that we lived in a, an environment in which there must have been enough vitamin C or these particular features were, were, it was not a required change to make. But now that we live in a whole different world of processed foods, every little thing matters. So all these little mutations that were once a, uh, a sign of having abundance in the, our immediate environment are no longer there. So uh, what I want to say is that currently, as much as we do all this talk about choline, we still don't know exactly. We certainly can't say anything like we have an RDA, a required daily allowance. Uh, we don't know the, um, the, what do you call it, the estimated, we don't have the estimated average requirement. And, um, and so we just deal with something called adequate intake, and that's all over the place. The the uh, study that I got this from at the University of North Carolina in 2006 that you know, found that even at the higher level that the NIH, National Institutes of Health, have established as, as kind of like the level that below which you don't get deficiency for men have the highest levels of 550 milligrams per a 70 kilogram guy, which is about 155 pounds. So that's where they started. But in this particular study, there was six of the, how many men there were? Six of the 26 men. So that's about 20%. That was not adequate for them. In other words, at that level, they started to have liver enzyme problems. At that level, they started to actually, it was more about kidney, it was more about muscle. They started to have muscle damage, muscle dysfunction. So they could measure the muscle dysfunction in the creatinine in the BUN as a lab, very subtle. And so that's interesting. So we're still trying to find out oh, how much do you need? So when people ask me, it's like, well, what's the best supplement? What's the best source? The reason I, I really come down to if everybody could have some degree of whole foods for liver, 
however you want to get there. You mix it with hamburgers, you, you, you know, you learn how to have it. You don't have to have it, just have a little bit of it. I know nobody likes liver. But the concept here and the point is, liver is more than folate, B12, and choline. It's a lot of other things. And so now you've covered a lot of bases. And egg yolks has a lot of things. It covered a lot of bases. So now having that as a background, as having that as an intake on a daily basis, some degree, some amount of that, that you have really minimized your risk of deficiency of a lot of these different things. When people are totally dependent on, oh, what's this, you know, that's the question I get all the time. Since I've spent a lot of time of choline, it's like, what's the best choline supplement? Well, choline is, you know, if you have, first of all, for you to get the benefit of choline, you need to have the deficiency. And if you just intake choline, you're going to get high in choline, and that has its other problems. So when you have it in a whole food source, it's very, very hard to have too much of any one thing because you put it in a context of so many different things. So that's why when people come back to whole food, they're not just being puritanical. They're not trying to be, you know, anal about this. They're, it's safer. And you go, well, I know the question, our, our sources of food have changed and the factory farmed. All that's true. We have other problems to deal with. However, for the most part, if we can start there and try to look for a better source of, of animal meats, um, they're just far richer. And I don't mean to be just animal. My, my lifestyle is primarily carnivore, if you will. Um, I wouldn't call it that because I don't, we don't do dairy and there's a few other things. So I don't even fit into that box. But for the most part, we're much more animal protein focused. We obviously have a garden and so we do a lot of other spices and so on and so forth. So I'm not phobic about that, but I'm saying animal sources provide so much more nutrition than plant sources. It's known, especially B12 and folate, speaking of which, and then choline. That's where the nutrition uh, deficiencies will will occur if, if one is just on that side. If you're going to be a vegetarian, be a vegetarian, but get your blood work done so you don't get chronic deficiencies and suffer all the consequences you know, therefrom. Especially if you're going to be a woman who's going to conceive, you really better know uh, your sources, make sure you're supplementing yourself. Um, so that's what I wanted to focus on. I'm going to just come circle around back to the estrogen role because I find, um, I find for me, I just learned about this in the last uh, year or two. Might have been in the last year, you know, of really digging down more and more and more because we've come through this era of the last 20 years of um, estrogen or hormone. HRT or ERT, estrogen replacement therapy or hormone replacement therapy. And there's two things that have changed in the world of hormone replacement therapy. One is there's now bioidentical. So you, 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 we no longer, so back in the 1990s and 80s and before, they took primarily, it was called Premarin. And Premarin was the estrogen from pregnant mares. So, um, and that's actually Premarin meant pregnant mares. So now they have bioidentical estrogen, all three estrogens, exactly like humans have them. And they can put it exactly in the amount that a general woman at a certain age in the fertility years. So the hormone replacement therapy and the estrogen, estrogen replacement therapy has so been promoted as what's well, going to keep women healthier to keep their estrogens higher. And the reason they would say that is, is just for this is because they go, well, look what happened. We gave them more estrogen and their choline got better. They didn't know that. They knew that estrogen made their bones stronger and made all these other things stronger. But what estrogen actually did for those women 
who had estrogen sensitive enzymes that now made the choline and a few other things, and by the way, choline is also tied into bone health, is that more than likely what they did is not give them more estrogen to make them healthier, they gave them more estrogen so for that set of women, which is most women, they could generate the choline and a few other things that are probably yet to be discovered that they needed during those high estrogen times. They were healthier. So that is a way, and, and, and hormone replacement therapy has become very popular in Europe to the point that most government health agencies, certainly I know that's in uh, Norway, I think, in, I don't know about the UK, but France and Germany, that it is part of what you have offered to you at no cost. And so that's amazing. So clearly governments have gotten behind this, at least the medical uh, organizations of such countries got behind this. So that was it. And it kind of makes perfect sense in the sense, I'll take the estrogen because all these other things will be working as if I'm the woman, woman with all these sensitive, uh, with all these sensitive enzymes, and assuming I have none of those SNPs, none of those mutations. And so I will be much healthier. Clearly that's true. But for those who don't have that sensitivity, it makes no difference at all. So HRT, ERT makes no difference at all in a subset of population of women that have these particular SNPs that I've talked about in various videos, PEMT and a few others. I know it's alphabet soup, but it's interesting. So to know the connection is more about nutrition and less about hormones. And so this is where we are in terms of medicine and health is knowing that, oh, wow, there's a difference here. And now we're finding where choline comes in. So just to summarize, choline is in basic foods. It's been around for hundreds of thousands of years, probably right back from the, as soon as we stepped out of the first amoeba and started evolving on our own. Um, but certainly as we got to be uh, carnivores and kleptocarnivores, we learned to steal eggs from every particular nest. We were pretty independent a complete set of nutrition and a little egg. It's a package. Talk about the first processed food. We're stealing it from other species to feed ourselves. And after that, it was liver. You know, liver is pretty much the most vital organ in the body. Of course, you can say brain and heart and so on and so forth. It all works together. But the liver is the one that creates a lot of things. It detoxifies a lot of things. It provides a lot of nutrition. Okay. So until next time, talk to you then. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcam again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you cho choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of a, just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions. 
and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.